Welcome to Multilingual Montessori, a podcast where we discuss multilingualism, multiculturalism, and raising children from a Montessori perspective. I'm Gabrielle Kutkov, an AMI Montessori guide and TESOL instructor, and I'm the founder of the Multilingual Montessori website and Instagram account. Today, I have not one, but two very special guests, Tina LeBoy and Rachel Coleman, who are the co-hosts of Mom Jeans, the podcast. Tina is a registered dietitian and certified personal trainer who lives in Austin, Texas, and Rachel is a marriage and family therapist and a certified eating disorder specialist who lives in Southern California. Together on their podcast, they take listeners on a journey of unpacking their old beliefs about food and weight to increase their confidence and raise body-confident kids. You might be wondering, what does this have to do with multilingualism or Montessori? I was curious to find out what advice Tina and Rachel could share about what language we can use and what language we should avoid when talking to children about food and about their bodies. I think this is a topic that a lot of parents and teachers struggle to approach in any language, and I knew they would have some great advice. Plus, Tina and Rachel are both moms. Rachel is a mom of three, and Tina is a mom of one with another due at the end of January, and Tina's son goes to a Spanish immersion preschool, so we also chatted about what that experience has been like for her family. As you'll hear, they are both experts and have so much information and knowledge to share. Please enjoy my conversation with Tina and Rachel. Well, hi, Tina and Rachel. Thanks so much for agreeing to be on the Multilingual Montessori podcast. Um, To start, I would love for you to each introduce yourselves. Tell us who you are, where you live, and what you do. Do you want to go first, Tina? Yes, I will go first. Hey, I'm Tina LaBoy. I live in good old Austin, Texas. Yeehaw. Those are the moments that I can say yeehaw. That's <laughs> the only time, okay? Uh, but yeah, live in Austin, Texas. Um, I have a group practice called TLB Nutrition Therapy, where it's a group of seven fabulous dietitians, one fabulous admin, thank you all. And we guide individuals through their recovery journey through a non-diet weight-inclusive framework. And we work with all ages, all populations. We love what we do. So that's, that's one niche of what I do. I also have a podcast with Rachel. Hey, yeah. Yeah. Mom Jeans, the podcast. So we'll, we'll maybe chat about that later or see how that fits in here. But uh, that is a really expensive hobby that Rachel and I do. (laughs) And uh, we love it. And I think I've become like a podcast editing expert based on that. So it's, it's been fun. What else do I do? I'm pregnant. I'm like, I'm so pregnant. So like (laughs) everything else, like, I don't even know. I don't know what I do. I just basically roll around in a ball. That's, (laughs) that's how I feel at this point. So and you're also uh, a mom already. I am a mom. Yeah. I have a three-year-old fabulous little dude. I'm totally obsessed with him. Um, we're in a week where he's really funny next week. He may turn into the devil child. I'm not sure, but but this week he's really funny. And so it's, it's super fun. Yeah. And uh, I have a husband who's great and just a, a ton of animals, too many animals. 
it's just, I can't, I can't take on anything else. <laughs> so that's me in a nutshell. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Okay. And Rachel, go ahead. I am part two of our podcast duo, like Tina mentioned. Uh, my name is Rachel Coleman and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. So I am the therapy and she is the nutrition so together, uh, that is kind of where we combine our talents, but I live in orange County, California, and I run a group practice that treats clients who are recovering from eating disorders and all the other comorbid diagnoses that kind of come along with it. So we do traditional talk therapy. We do a lot of art and creative and expressive therapy, just kind of helping people process whatever they're going through. And I am a mom of three children. How old are they? They are 10, seven, and five. Cool. Thanks. Well, um, so on my podcast, we often talk about bilingualism and multilingualism, the intersection between language and identity and Montessori. And we're not really going to be talking about any of those things too much today. Oh, that's good. <laughs> but I'm so... <laughs> I'm so excited to have both of you here because um, I think that how we talk to children about food and about our bodies is so impactful from a very young age in any language. So I think that, um, you know, parents and teachers really crave more information and more guidance about how to talk to young children about those topics. Um, but before we get into it, uh, tell me about how the idea for the Mom Jeans podcast came about. I'll do my version because Tina likes okay. to throw me under the bus. I do. Version. I like shame, Rachel. <laughs> I had a brilliant idea and I invited Tina along. You're welcome. Um, I, we love podcasts and it's a really important topic to always be discussing. And in both of our work, you know, Tina and I continue to collaborate, even though we now live in different states, we've really realized that so much of the work we do with our clients really stems from an entire family system. And I love that you kind of have this multilingual podcast because really diet culture has become its own language. It's just a language that we're kind of observe and learn to speak that not all cultures speak, not all cultures sit there and around a buffet and shame themselves. Like that's just not a language that all family systems speak and each family system has their own language for it. And so we really started looking at at it from a broader perspective as we uh, work with our clients. And so we realized that it's really important to kind of get into the heads of parents and of whoever else is listening, just to kind of figure out how to challenge and look at the family system they were raised in, the language that they learned, and then how they want to tweak that for themselves to heal. And then also to break the legacy. So it doesn't continue on to the next generation. So that is kind of where the whole concept was born. And I knew I needed Tina's expertise. So I dragged her in, in her postpartum haze and we hit the ground running. And yeah. how many, Your how long has it been now? It's beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> uh, that is a great three question. Years. Three, three years. years. Yeah. Wow. Henry is three. It's three. Yeah. yeah. Because I, I was so newly postpartum and Rachel's like, I have this great idea. I want to do a podcast. And I'm like, heck yeah, I have so much free time. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's been three years. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. Oh, congratulations. Um, okay. So to 
get into it, just generally speaking, what are some things that we can be aware of, anyone can be aware of when talking to children about food? Like square one. Hmm. Okay. What can we be aware of? I think. Like do's and don'ts. Yeah. I would, I would start with saying less is more. Like we don't really need to be talking about food all that much, to be honest. I know. That's what I, I'm like, my brain is going to the fact that the more we try to control, the more we're messing it up right? Because we have our own food beliefs that were passed along to us from either our families or individuals in our lives or our own experiences. And we live in diet culture. And while our kids live in diet culture as well, they're innocent, right? They don't realize the subliminal messaging that's happening. Like when I listen to some of the things that Henry is exposed to, let's say on a kid cartoon or something. I'm like, what are they saying? But he doesn't, he doesn't, he's not taking it into the way that I'm taking it in right now. Maybe he is. And that's a whole different thing. But at, at this point, I would say the the do is just try to keep food on a neutral platform the best that you can. The don'ts are to project your own anxiety, your own distorted beliefs, your own shame onto your children, because then you're basically designing and morphing their innocent belief into your own anxiety projection or body shame or whatever it may be, guilt around what you're eating. Yeah. I find most language about this and in the, the feelings behind it when parents are talking to children is all fear-based. So the second a parent starts feeling scared about something, they will start talking or saying things or suggesting things, right? We all do it. If your child's at the playground, they start climbing up too high and your fear starts going, they're going to get hurt. Don't fall. Don't fall. Kids like, yeah, I wasn't planning on it. <laughs> and also how is saying don't fall helpful, right? But we can't help it in those moments. We just have that fear. And I think the same thing happens when we're in the, the kitchen and we're preparing a snack and we see our child dump my kid took the whole Costco size goldfish thing the other day and just dumped <laughs> it upside down. I mean, you can imagine like, it's like a snow pile of goldfish, you know? And so obviously that's different. But in, for example, in that moment, if a parent has a fear-based reaction, that's too much. We don't need that many. And, and it, or something along those lines will come out. Now, again, the intentions are never that they're maybe ill-informed or again, it's, it's a parent's fear that needs to continue to be checked so that when the language comes out to Tina's point, it is more neutral or just silent. I was just, instead my reaction could be like, whoop, that was, that was a mess. Let's put some back. So you have enough for your plate. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I think the, the whole point is really just kind of always doing this underlying work as parents or as caregivers of what's going on internally so that we can be really mindful of the language that's coming out. Mm. Right. That is actually a big theme, not even specifically about this, but in general in, in Montessori. Preparation of the adult, we talk a lot about um, doing the internal work before going into yeah. a room full of children. Right. Yeah. Um, so... Do you have any advice for teachers who need to talk to parents about food and like what they can and can't put in their child's lunch or, you know, 
maybe a teacher is like concerned that there's not enough variety or anything like that. How is a, how can they approach that in a neutral and open way? Right. I, so Henry goes to an all Spanish speaking school and, um, the teacher, uh, so English is not her first language. And so when she's communicating, she just did this at a parent teacher conference where it was like, please stop sending sugar in your kid's lunch. You don't understand what it's like. Okay. And like how it's coming out. Like I get what she's saying. And so she literally had asked like, Tina, can you explain? I said, yes. Okay. So basically how, how, if I was the teacher, I would explain is that, Hey, it's obvious that when we're feeding our child a quick carbohydrate, like a cookie or whatever, M&Ms, that it, the body is going to do exactly what it's supposed to do, which give these children a burst of energy, right? Now, take that one child, multiply it by 16, and that is what this poor teacher is dealing with, right? When the child is technically supposed to be calming down after lunch, right? And so, or sitting down and doing some assignment and focus. So I think in that light, you know, she's basically saying like, can you please pack things that allow your child to stay present in the classroom and regulate their own energy and save these things for your home time, right? And so that's the guide, right? Where, hey, we're we're really just trying to create the most conducive environment for your child. And a lot of times when there isn't this balanced variety within the lunch, then your child is going to have its natural reaction to the food you're giving it, which is quick energy and, or being extremely hyper. It's no shame to the child. It's no shame to the food. It's exactly what the food's supposed to be doing, right? So that can be one angle. Or if there's not enough variety, you can say like, hey, I'm checking in with you to make sure that accessibility is here or awareness is here. What I'm seeing in the child's lunch is maybe lacking X, Y, and Z, maybe lacking some color or lacking some fiber. Um, Can I provide some guidance or assistance on what I would maybe include? Or do you feel like you need some help around that? Is this food accessible to you? Um, Is this at all an awareness point of yours? Or maybe culturally, it's not they're packing what's in their culture and they don't see what you see and what you see is maybe not what they agree with. Right. And so if we're talking about cultural, cultural diversity here, we really need to be aware that not everyone is going to abide by this American standard. Right. So, and there might be language barrier, which is why I'm bringing up like the Spanish teachers basically saying, stop it. Right. Um, so that, that would be my guide. Um, and it's really just coming from that neutral, non-judgmental language. I'm not saying this is good, that's bad. It's really just like, matter of fact, very neutral. I don't yeah. know, therapeutically, Rachel, if you're, any other thoughts? It's or just as a parent. <laughs> I mean, my gut says, I don't, I don't know if I think it's that appropriate for teachers to get involved. You know, I think a lot of that's pretty personal and, 
I understand teachers are impacted potentially, but at the same time, like, I think sometimes we, um, in our culture, it's very easy to hyper fixate on food when really there's other things that could be leading to a child's behavior. You know, maybe there's disrupted nap times or sleep schedules, or, you know, maybe there's more inconsistent discipline at home. And so it's not the candy is like maybe one piece that's impacting a child's energy, but there's also a lot more. And I think it's easy just to say like, Hey, based on the sugar in your kid's lunch, he was acting out and it's like, well, maybe, maybe it's more than that. Um, so I, I guess, I guess my, my thought is to kind of, you could view maybe nutrition as a piece to the puzzle, but as I'm sure you all do in your Montessori's, you're looking at the whole child as well. And so it's kind of important, I think, to look at the whole family dynamic, the whole family system, and just all the other pieces. Right. It's kind of my yeah. thought. Yeah. That is, that is a really great point. There's so many different layers yeah. Um, and also I, I appreciated Tina, when you said that there are also cultural differences surrounding food that we also need to be aware of. I wrote, I wrote a note about that. I didn't necessarily have a question, but when we were saying something before it made me think of it, I'm glad you brought that up because that's yeah. also an important piece to be aware of. For sure. And I think Rachel's coming from the framework of like kids in public school, whereas, you know, we're talking about kind of Montessori led schooling where I know there are specific food standards per se, right? Like recommendations, maybe, I don't really mm-hmm. know, but, um, and so I think it's just, again, there's no judgment around either, right? But I think that it is really important to really just make sure that yes, we're staying within our lane to asking coming with from curiosity versus like these absolute facts because I think Rachel does bring up that good point like we just don't know what's happening behind closed doors and unless you can paint that full picture we just don't know so from the teacher's perspective coming in with curiosity asking about accessibility what the home life you know if there really is a concern like being curious to Mm. how that kid is you know being taken care of a lot. Yeah. Um, So what advice would you, or do you give to parents who are concerned about their children's eating habits, whether they're not eating enough or eating too much Um, coming from a neutral perspective? I know this is probably like 101, what you do every day. No, it's like here, how much time do you have? You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. It's so layer do you want to do the therapy part because I feel like I could literally talk on that for a while and then um I think it kind of piggybacks on what I was saying earlier which is that you know food and eating habits um and even weight you know they're a symptom of something else going on I always tell I work with eating disorders but I, I often tell my clients you know like you didn't just wake up one day and have an eating disorder the eating disorder was secondary you know what what came first that led to using food to cope and so you can kind of bring that down to the child's perspective you know there's there's very very few resources they have to express themselves and to to process their emotions and eating might be one way that they have learned to organize their thoughts or calm their, their body systems when they're overstimulated. And so I think you're looking again at the whole child and the whole family system and the whole child's environment. And it's one piece of the puzzle. And it might be a really, really great clue that you have, you know, you might think, you know, my child's pretty resilient, but gosh, there's this one eating habit they have, and there's your clue. 
there's your clue to go, you know what, maybe this child is struggling with something deeper that I don't really realize. So I guess put on detective hat. Um, It's not just about, um, you know, the protein and the sugar on the label. It, It is just, it's more in my mind, bigger picture about the child's like psychology and its psychological state. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That's so interesting that you say that. Cause, um, in Montessori and, and even in other early childhood settings, we talk a lot about young children o- having control over sleep, going to the bathroom and eating. And that's about mm-hmm. all they can control when they're very young. Um, and so from an educator's point of view, we talk to parents about, you know, if they're resisting one of those things, it might be just, you know, a developmental stage, or it might be there, something else is going on. So I liked what you said about putting on the detective hat and trying to look at the whole picture. Yeah. Yeah. So if we come from the food, the actual food angle and like the body trust angle, much of my philosophy comes from Ellen Satter. And so if you've listened to our podcast and you're a listener here, you will hear us always talk about Ellen Satter. Um, So Ellen came up with the division of responsibilities. Uh, The parents decide the what, the when, and the where, and the child decides if and how much. And so if you're the parent concerned about, oh my gosh, my kid's eating too much or too little, then you're stepping into their lane of deciding if and how much. And so, you know, maybe that is coming in with curiosity and asking your kid maybe why they're not eating as much at this snack, or maybe they just don't feel like it, or maybe it means sitting on your hands and biting your tongue and just letting your kid experience their own development and trust with their body. I mean, there are some times where Henry literally eats nothing. And I'm like, how is this kid not starving? And then three days later ends up eating so much food. I'm like, how is this fitting in your belly? But that's his like, own regulation or hey yeah knowing that we're going out to a restaurant with like a playground there's no way that this kid is going to sit down and eat I it's just not that kind of kid and so I have to kind of guide him and bring him into the what and the where and say it's time to sit we're going to have you know x amount of minutes where we like focus on listening to our bodies and creating space for food you know opening it up that he can eat however much, but I'm creating the space for him to actually take time to check in with himself. Otherwise he would just run around. Now, granted, I see parents at this playground, letting their kids run around with food in their hand. It's just not the, the stage and the development that I'm wanting for him. But so as a parent, your job is again, designing that what, when, and where. So if you need some sense of control, it's Really, your child is not able to regulate and design a well-balanced meal or a well-balanced snack. Their their little brains can't compute that at this point, or they need some guidance around it. And so providing the accessibility to the food and teaching them or just guiding them on this is what we typically have. And here are some options. And I'm going to give you two choices and you get to pick between that. But really outside of that, the kid decides how much. And so here's where maybe you need to get your own support in therapy or from friends or whatever to how can you manage your own anxiety or projection when you think that your kid is not eating in according to your body standards or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's such a good point too, because, you know, as adults, we're not growing, going through huge physical changes like, like Mm -hmm. young children are. So our bodies need 
I maybe tell me if I'm wrong about this, but pretty much about the same amount of food every day, unless we're like exercising or maybe it's cyclical for women, but a young child might, you know, like you said, not have much of an appetite one day and three days later be ravenously hungry because they're going through such huge changes. Yeah. It's insane to watch. I'm, I'm like, or like if he's sick, right. It's like this kid did not, all he drank was milk. That's it. And I'm like, how are you not starving? But I don't say anything. Right. And then it's, what do you know? A couple of days later, I'm like, this kid is chowing down and has eaten more than, I don't know how his little belly's holding, but we just have to trust that if we're not creating the anxiety or the mistrust or the second guessing, then they actually can really listen to their body. They, they're, those signals aren't disrupted. They're not going to just eat to eat because they don't, they're not subjected to the diet culture yet. Now, granted, this is going to change as your child matures and gets older. And I think this is where maintaining this kind of family standard that we keep food neutral, we trust our bodies, we accept diversity and come from this inclusive framework that then you've really built this safety within the house that the kid always knows to come back to when they are exposed to diet culture and shaming and or if they live in, you know, a marginalized body or hold a marginalized identity that then they're coming back and having that safe environment to be able to talk to you about of like, people are saying this, or they're telling me, let's stay on fat. I, 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 should I restrict my food? Right. And, and if you can have that home environment, then that is safe, then they are, they have a better chance to continue down this road of strong values around weight inclusivity and non-diet. Yeah. Oh, thanks. I love that. That was great. Um, so in Montessori, we do a lot of food preparation, even with toddlers, as young as toddlers, we do all kinds of food preparation and also, um, gardening and growing vegetables when we can. Um, so what are your favorite things to either make with your children or to encourage parents to make with their children? We're looking forward to making Christmas cookies this weekend. I don't know when this episode is going to air, but we yeah. are recording it in December. And yeah. so we are, I was just before this making the list of the groceries of lots of butter and flour and sugar and M&Ms. And we are going to decorate Christmas cookies this weekend. So nice. my kids get really into, um, they get really more into helping me with the desserts and the kind of the fun foods because of their age. They're just, they're in that age where you know, they kind of know what's going on and they like the fun foods, you know, they're just at that kind of age where they're smart enough, but also young enough. So they really kind of like getting on board with, with that kind of stuff. And we just, we make it fun and let them, you know, lick the batter and just, just enjoy it. Because I think that that is a really great foundation for them to associate all these things as something that was memory building. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. For Henry, he is more, he's not very interested in the prep of stuff. He, he's not into it. Um, I've given him like his, like, you know, toddler knife and allowed him to like 
cut stuff or whatever, but he's more interested in doing that with like, let's say Play-Doh or Mm. something where he can like kind of build to like get him to actually like, can you make this snack? He's like, no, but he will, we have this like awesome pantry. And so if I'm like, Hey, I, can you go get this for me? I'm making your snack. He'll go get the container and help me pour or he likes pouring um, liquids into his cups Um, and so he's really into that as far as helping Um, funny story so I'm from Ohio and so one of like a common cookie that is made is called a buckeye and so it's basically peanut butter and powdered sugar and chocolate dipped chocolate and so he was making that while my mom was in town and she was making it with him and she's like this is going to be a beautiful experience and all this stuff and (laughs) I've never seen the kitchen messier and my mom was like she never is frazzled and she was like frazzled she's like get this kid out of the kitchen you know I'm like you wanted to make Buckeyes with him so I think it's like Maybe tell me if I'm wrong, but is it like the personality of the child? Because honestly, like I can't imagine having like some beautiful moment of like, oh, this is so great prepping with you at the end of it. I'm like, I'm going to like burn this house down. I need to shower like seven times. Um, So, you know, go with it. If you, if your kid can like make stuff or cut things or help you pour stuff in a bowl or a cup have at it. I, I'm looking forward to the days where I'm like, can you make a sandwich for yourself, please? (laughs) Yeah. Maybe that could be now, but it's not my child. I, I'm as a control (laughs) freak. Um, I, (laughs) I prefer to do everything myself and not make the mess. So I try to include them. But one of the things that we like to do in our family is they like to help slash I assign them the chore of setting the table. So they like to decorate it with little name tags, or if it's near a holiday, I'm like, go put some Christmas coloring pages. And I don't know. I, I kind of give them the chore of getting all the waters, all the silverware, all the napkins, all the placemats and helping them with that. And then they can have some creativity. And then they're also setting up for the family meal. And, you know, a lot of times in our line of work, we really try to encourage the family meal because it's all about the connection, the communication. And that, that is, takes place of, what can become a maladaptive coping skill of people using food to get that connection. And so that I think is really, really helpful because they are kind of involved in this whole family meal time, but it's less about the food and more about the fact that we're going to sit down and try to connect. Now, obviously that is not every single night, but that is just kind of one way that people might be able to creatively kind of bring their kids into something that's more than just cutting the vegetables. Yeah. 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 Oh, great point. Um, so, I mean, we, we sort of talked about this before when you said less is more when talking about food with children, um, should we ever talk about food in terms of healthy or good for our bodies? Or is that putting a judgment on it? And if not, what kind of language do you encourage using? Like, can we say special treat or a sometimes food for Mm. something sugary, or should we really not even be talking about it? It's such a good question because I really feel like this is so confusing, right? The the information our children are taught in schools are not information that their brains should be taking in, right? So like I'm talking about older kids, um, 
So like some homework assignments that parents are asking me about from that their kids are being sent home with are like categorizing food, red light, yellow light, green light foods, or pick the column that this food should go in. So really like, it's like stigmatizing this food, categorizing this food from a young age. That is not how we learn. And that is not actual health, right? Like categorizing this food into this column, how is that teaching your child about balanced eating or about listening to their bodies or about true values of health, right? So I think that our school systems have a lot of work to be done in regards to how to educate our child around food. I think one um, resource is a book called The Plate by Plate or How to Nourish Your Child Through an Eating Disorder. That's the name of the book, How to Nourish Your Child Through an Eating Disorder. And they use a method called the plate by plate method. And so what this method is doing is it's using a plate to design someone's portion. And it includes macro balance. So incorporating carbohydrates, proteins and fats and color. And it really allows for variety. It includes desserts. It includes all food groups. It's culturally appropriate. And I feel like if that was being taught more in schools of like how to design a plate, how to fill your plate, right? And then how to listen to your body and how to incorporate gentle movement, fun movements and things along those lines, that we would really see our children actually having education and knowledge around nutrition. But what we're seeing is these kids are categorizing foods and then not necessarily knowing what to do with that or just regurgitating information by reading food labels at school and coming home and being like, this has this many calories. I don't know what to do with that information, right? Like, it's, it's just not helpful. In regards to the language we use around food, I think we just need to call food what it is, right? So if you're going to have cookies for a snack or incorporate it into the meal, then you just say cookies, or you just say pie, or you just say goldfish. You don't say treats. You don't say special treats. You, you don't you're, you don't platform it because by saying, oh, we're going to have a treat later, what does that mean, right? Like, oh, we're going to go get ice cream after dinner as a family. I know exactly what you're saying. I know that we're physically going to go get ice cream. But when you categorize it, then you're adding judgment and a label to something that maybe that person really didn't have that label or we didn't recognize it as this special thing, but now it is special. And so if it's special, I better eat all of it because I don't know the next time you're going to give me this special moment. Right. So I think it's really just keeping things as neutral as possible. So in this instance, it's just labeling the food, what it acts or calling it actually what it is. Hmm. As my children get older, I kind of default a little bit more to what Tina was saying earlier about the function of food. Um, you know, I, I kind of will tell my child that my, especially my almost 11 year old, you know, he's getting old enough now where I'll say, you know, I, you could totally, you know, have that if he wants to, if he's trying to pick the food himself, but at the same time, I know that's not going to fill you up very long and you've got a soccer game. So can you add, you know, 
X or Y. I'll give him like two maybe protein-based options to it. Um, or my son has, speaking of control and Montessori, same child during his preschool years struggled with encopresis. It was how he managed his anxiety over baby sister being born. He was not going to go to the bathroom. And so we had a long time of dealing with some really severe, you know, bowel movement issues. And that's kind of still had a lingering effect on him. And so he's the, my kid who I'm like, I, you got to eat your vegetables, you know, or you got to have some of that fiber. And I know that goes against Alan Satter, but for him, it's not at all about anything, but he has to keep his system regular because medically it can get really painful if he doesn't. And he knows that I'm like, but it helps you go to the bathroom. He's like, I know, I know, I know. And he'll pick the vegetables he likes, or he'll help me make, be a part of that. But, you know, we're really kind of going towards the, a lot of the function of it. And then kind of just as he gets older, starting to drop a little bit of that control because it is, he is getting older and he is starting to be more in charge of his body. He has gone out of the house more than he is home now. And so it's really been an interesting situation of going, you know, I've planted the seeds and I also have, um, planted body trust. And I'm going to have to kind of just try to support him as he navigates this and be a safe space for him to come and ask some of those questions about things or explore or tell me that felt good or that didn't feel good or, you know, something along those lines. So I know your podcast is for, um, for younger children, but that was kind of my thought as I'm having these conversations with older children. Um, but another fun, quick story, we were in CBS the other day and my five-year-old, um, he, he struggles sometimes with lact lactose, you know, not enough that's too severe, but I was out of the lactase that I'll give him if he's having like a bowl of ice cream or like a pizza or something that's pretty, you know, more dairy based and really loud in front of like an entire line of people. He's like, mommy, don't forget the pills that I eat. So I don't get diarrhea when I eat dairy. <laughs> 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 and I was like, oh, everyone I was laughing, but I thought that was like, it was kind of cute that he's like, oh, mommy, like these are the times when my belly hurts. And he's learning, you know, like what, what his body feels like and when, when he's eating those foods. And he'll tell me like one time he took recently, he took a something. I, I don't remember the food. And he's like, last time I ate this, my belly hurt. And I was like, oh, it did. Like, I didn't even remember, but that was really cool that he was able to kind of like associate that and remember that. So I think just anything where you're kind of remaining neutral, but the body trust component is there and you're kind of teaching them to start reading their body and learning what works and learning what felt good is that's just kind of the angle we take in my home. Yeah. I think to validate what you're saying, cause I know you're like, well, that's not Ellen Satter or whatever, but, <laughs> but it, 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 you have to think hashtag it real is life. Hashtag <laughs> real life, where, where you're not saying, Hey, you need to eat three more bites in order to earn or in, right. earn, in order right. to have this cookie, right. you're just saying like, Hey buddy, remember mm -hmm. the veggies on your plate are, I, I gave them to you because mm -hmm. your body really does need them and whatever. Right. Yeah. So you're not basing it off of this earning point system. Right. It really is just, you're saying exactly Exactly what the vegetables do. They provide fiber. So they help us poop and yeah. keep us regular and give us vitamins and minerals. And for him, it's a little bit more severe that he does need to make sure that he's taking that in versus other kids, like their bowels just function a little bit more yeah. regularly. So I don't think it's a bad thing. Of and most doing. nights he'll be like, I don't want to. And he'll leave the table and I'll be like, well, okay. Okay. Well, I'll see you. Let me know. Yeah, exactly. Food natural consequences later in the bathroom, you know? Yeah. So I, I'm not, I'm not making him sit there and eat his pile of vegetables at all. It's just, Hey, that reminder, because reminder, right. Especially because you're at that age now where, and this is all ages with children where 
it's that instant gratification. They, they, they don't developmentally have the ability to think long-term about how yeah. they'll feel in five hours. And so, and that's what we have as parents. We have that perspective, which is why all of this topic goes back to control. Like we know all of this. And so we try to control the moment because we want to control that the later part of the story. And, right. and the kids don't have that long-term thinking. And so we're really trying to help navigate how do we as the parent use our wisdom and our ability to think long-term, but also meet the child where they are, which is in the moment, does this feel good or not? Why do I want to do it? I don't want to stop playing and have my nap. I don't want to go stop playing, go to the bathroom. And you're trying to kind of help guide and teach and, but also developmentally meet them where they're at. So it, it's really yeah. quite a dance in all of these areas of child development. And also, especially with food, when we have this diet culture, that's always telling us like, make sure your kid is healthy, make sure your kid is healthy, make sure your kid is, and like, what, what does that mean when my top? kid is three years old and chucking their food across the, the, the kitchen table. And yeah. what does that mean when they're 10 and they go out with their friends and they're only eating, I don't know, whatever they're eating. And so it's, yeah. it's really, again, this constant dance of like, what's in my control, what's in their control. And how do we just help them learn how to take care of themselves? Yeah. 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 And that's like, that's really what's at the heart of it too. Mm-hmm. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, And this is also maybe shifting to an older age group. What are some things that we can be aware of when we're talking to children about bodies, both our own and theirs and their bodies? Maybe starting with young children, but also particularly um, when they're, you know, maybe seven, eight, nine and becoming more aware of comparisons and that societal stuff is coming in. Yep. I, I think representation matters. So if your child is aware of body diversity and that at seven or eight years old, they're not getting their first taste of someone that looks different from them, um, different color, different shape, different size, um, that, you know, starting as young as you can to have that dialogue that bodies are different. And so there's many books out there that are age appropriate that talk about diversity, um, I think is really important. Now, as your kid gets older, you really need to ensure, it it really depends on what kind of body your kid lives in, right? Does your kid have uh, thin privilege? And so with that, the conversation is going to be about other people living in different body shapes and sizes and maybe the privilege that that child holds, um, your child living in a thinner body and, um, you know, how to treat other people equally and the struggles that they may go through versus a kid that lives in a bigger body and maybe is getting teased at school or being told by people that they should change their body or that they can't sit with the other kids because their body is different or, whatever. I think it's really one thing is to not take away that experience. So to say, to not say, oh, you're not fat, you're beautiful, or you're, you're not chunky, you're really smart. So basically you're creating this dynamic that you can't be both. You can't be fat and beautiful. You can't be chunky and smart, right? So it's really just maybe saying like, yeah, you, your body is bigger and so is mine. Or that's the beauty of our family. Our family has bigger bones and bigger body structure. 
or that's where your body's at right now and there's nothing wrong with it. And there are going to be some kids and families and people that don't accept all individuals for their body diversity. And so I think it's validating the child's experience, not taking it away, and then also normalizing that, you know, your body is different and, and that is okay. I think if it becomes an issue, then consulting with a professional or an individual that comes from a very weight inclusive, so non-judgmental perspective on how to really handle it per your specific child's needs to make sure that you're not neglecting anything that's going on. Because what Rachel said in the beginning that is really important is weight is a symptom. It's not a behavior. So we can't wait ourselves, right? We're not waiting all over the place. It is our weight is a symptom of something bigger. And so if your child is having some sort of rapid weight change, then maybe we need to look at that as a symptom and assess what other behaviors are going on to make sure that we're not really neglecting something. And forcing a child to lose weight is neglectful and harmful and um, not right. And so by focusing on maybe the behaviors that are causing these shifts, would be more supportive. Yeah. Yeah. I think just all bodies are different. Everyone is different. You know, everyone's hair color is different. Eye color is different. Body size is different. Talents are different. It's just you're you and that kid's that kid. And, you know, we just try to keep it, keep it really neutral and celebrate, celebrate everybody's everything as much as possible. Yeah. Um, So this is not at all related to food or bodies, but Tina, before when you were talking about uh, Henry going to a Spanish speaking school, can you just tell me a little bit about what that's been like for your family since multilingualism is a big part of this podcast as well? For sure. So I am not Spanish. Uh, I, my family is Italian and my husband's family is half Italian, half Puerto Rican. And so his Puerto Rican side of his family speaks Spanish. Um, And so it's really important for me and my husband to pass along that, um, you know, heritage and make sure that um, he can, my son can communicate with his family. Now they speak English as well, but I feel like it's important to continue that part of our culture, his culture, but it's, it's, and I am trying to learn Spanish and it's a slow process and it's okay, but it's really, really cool to watch because my son, technically his first language is Spanish because he's been in daycare in a Spanish speaking school since he's been six months old. And so he gets more Spanish exposure than he does English exposure. I also have a child that is very verbal. And so like at the age of six months was speaking and by one year was fully verbal. And now as a three-year-old, it's like, I feel like I'm talking to a seven-year-old. It's, it's insane. I remember that. And he speaks, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I remember when he was like 10 months old and was saying so many things and I was like blown away. (laughs) 
blown away. Yeah. So now he speaks Spanish. Um, wow. And it's, it's really awesome to watch him. And it's like, as soon as we pull into the school parking lot, he starts like, if he's frustrated and saying he doesn't want us to go to school, he'll start saying it in Spanish. No, uh, no, la escuela, I don't want it. No, no. Like uh, just really going at his brain, like clicks over that's so and cool. he's immediately in that mode or, um, we were reading a book. It's like the dinosaur, uh, the dinosaurs like spicy tacos or book or whatever. Oh, and yeah, love that book. Uh huh. And but it's we got it in Spanish, and so I'm reading it to him in Spanish, and he looks at me and he goes, "Mama, you're so bad at Spanish." <laughs> I was like, but thank you for telling me that. And this is how mama learns. Okay. So is it still okay if I read it in Spanish? She goes, yeah, but I'm, I'm going to tell Miss Moni, who's this teacher that you need to come to school and learn Spanish. That is so awesome. basically I'm being shamed by my child <laughs> for my Spanish, but it is really awesome. And his, his brain is capable and we don't speak Spanish at home. He just get it, gets it at school and he can, if we are out and about and someone, he was playing with this kid on a playground and the kids speak Spanish and was speaking Spanish to him and Henry boop, went right into Spanish. And I'm like, that's so cool. I don't know what they're talking about, but this is amazing, <laughs> right? Like you're not even in school and your brain just flipped over. So I love yeah. watching it. Ah, hopefully I can keep up. Yeah. 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 That's so cool. Do you, um, do you plan to send him to a Spanish language elementary school when he's old enough or how do you, I don't, how do you, it doesn't exist here ah. it, where we live in dripping. Yeah. yeah. But my plan is to, um, this is just going to spit privilege, but, um, to get like a mother's helper, um, because my husband travels for a living and we're about to have two kids and I'm just going to need help. And so I had talked to his teacher at school, the principal at school saying like, you know, do you know anyone that kind of needs or wants more hours or is interested in kind of taking on a role with a family? And so ideally we would have someone that works part-time with the family with us and um, is Spanish speaking. And so could really just continue that. Mm. Um, so that that's my thought. Or if not, then we will uh, bring on just some uh, kind of multiple time a week, not necessarily tutoring, but it's just like conversational, you know, studies that yeah. he'll be exposed to. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that'll be great. Mm -hmm. Um, well, my last question for you, although before I ask my last question, is there anything about food or eating or bodies or multilingualism that I didn't ask you that you wanted to share? Hmm. Well, mull on that and let me ask this question. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm like, oh, um, I don't know. <laughs> Um, we did cover a lot. So if the answer is no, that's okay too. Um, yeah. so we touched on this a bit before, but what would you recommend to a parent who notices a change in their child's eating habits, um, to determine whether it's just a 
stage, a developmental phase, or to try to figure out the root cause and figure out if they should get, you know, advice from a professional. Yeah. Oh, Rachel, what episode is the Monge episode, the Dr. Monge episode? So we, we did um, a podcast episode where we interviewed uh, eating disorder specialist pediatrician who, you know, talked about kind of the warning signs of eating disorders and really when it's like, eh, you should seek medical help here, right? Like, not like, oh, you're, what, episode, what episode 65. 65. Okay. So like, this is when to involve a professional. And I think mm-hmm. the, the key realm is like, it's it, normal behaviors are, have changed. And there's now this like increase in obsessional thinking. So like one example is like, okay, if you're, if your kid typically loves helping you prep a meal and before they would really just like ask like, what's in this, this, what's this? And why are we putting this in? You know, it's just like really innocent questioning versus like, why are you adding that? Is it, doesn't that have like a lot of calories? Like, should we like cut it out or do we really need that? Or like, I'm okay without that. Don't add that. Or I'm not going to eat that even though you prepped it. Right. It's like kind of this shift in, okay, that used to be this one way used to be normal. And now it almost feels like there's these barriers in the way, right? Or this obsession around their body, like feeling like they wouldn't do some normal things. Now they're isolating a bit more. They don't want to go out with friends. They're covering up. They're wearing really baggy things. Um, They're really curious about the scale. You find out that they're weighing themselves. They want to track things, right? It's like kind of this like, exit outside of really just some curious questioning uh, to now, like, these are kind of boundaries and limits and obsessions that really feel like it's a damper on their personality and development and really just overall mental health. Yeah. I think younger children, going back to if you're starting to see them maybe using food as a coping skill for something they don't have the words to process, Um, I remember when my, my daughter was young, two, three years old, we got a new babysitter and I I could tell she didn't like the babysitter because she kept asking when the babysitter was there for lollipops, like all the time. And it was just this interesting shift. Like, okay, did she just discover lollipops? They're fun. I don't know. And then I kind of started realizing, I, I think this is the therapist to me. I think she's asking for something sweet because the babysitter wasn't being sweet. Like, I think Mm -hmm. there was something where she was really just not feeling safe and not liking this babysitter. And she was my pacifier kid. So she had been used to like the, the oral fixation. And then Here's something sweet when the babysitter was bitter. And I just also, I really started looking at it from just this interesting perspective and was able to kind of switch out the babysitter, quite frankly, it took a little while. I couldn't do it immediately, obviously, but I kind of just have been using it. Like I said earlier about clues, you know, there, there could be just different clues that again, your child has very, very little options for, for managing and processing feelings. And food is one of their most easily accessible things. So if you're noticing that they're using it in different ways, it it might be because there's something going on that they need to be processing. And again, kind of zooming back. And instead of just being like, no, honey, we don't eat lollipops. Lollipops aren't healthy or something. Like I'm ignoring the entire thing behind it. 
So that would be my only thing. Once again, put on that detective hat and kind of see if it's, it's more than just about a lollipop. That's the shirt. It's more than just a lollipop. Yeah. 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 Um, All right. Well, anything else, any other thoughts that came to mind that you wanted to mention? There is so much that we covered. Um, Yeah. Just thank you for having us. And I think great questions. We're just scraping the surface here, but uh, I'm glad that we got to come on and chat. Me too. And everyone can listen to the Mom Jeans podcast for more in-depth information. I know you have, you interview a lot of experts on a lot of different Mm -hmm. topics. Um, And yeah, thank you so much, both of you for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you again to Tina and Rachel for joining me for this conversation. Although this was a bit of a departure from our usual topics, I hope you learned a lot. I know I did. You can find Mom Jeans the podcast, that's Jeans spelled G-E-N-E-S, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow Tina and Rachel at Mom Jeans the podcast on Instagram. You can follow Multilingual Montessori on Instagram at multilingual.montessori, and you can find more resources for raising bilingual and multilingual children from a Montessori perspective at multilingualmontessori.org. Please take a moment to subscribe to the Multilingual Montessori podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you're interested in an extra episode each month on a topic related to language acquisition in young children, you can join the Patreon community. You'll find the link to that in the episode description. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Another wonderful way to support the podcast is to share it with someone who you think would enjoy it as well. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. Thank you.